0: Okay, First Chronicles chapter 16, we actually ended in verse 6 last week. David has just brought the Ark of the Covenant to Jerusalem, his second try, the first try, was a major flop, because he did it, and the priests did it, the Levites did it, Without properly seeking the Lord. We're going to read tonight about another account of the prophet Nathan where he did something, he gave some advice without seeking the Lord. You know, anytime we read anything um, about David, we just have to place Tuesday night. Unless there was a big part, if not all, of your heart after the Lord's own heart. And the thing about David that is just so wonderful, and then we'll see it in Nathan tonight again. They started off doing something, was told by the Lord that it was wrong, and they just... crucified the flesh. The Bible says that anyone who is Christ, in Christ has crucified the flesh. And they went back and sucked it up and sucked up their pride and did the right thing. God is a God of second chances, and third and fourth and fifth and sixth and seventh and eighth. He, he, he really is. David's reign over the entire 12 tribes of Israel. for 7 were just... Judah, and Benjamin in the south. And then, after bringing the Ark of the Covenant to Jerusalem, he has a worship concert. Verse 7, chapter 16 says, On that day, David first delivered this psalm into the hand of Asaph and his brethren to thank the Lord as I was just preparing it I, I, I do strongly recommend that even though you've never written a song of your own to the Lord can I encourage you to do that that's what the psalms are and it doesn't it doesn't it can be just for you you can write it and store it away or you can write it and meditate on it and throw it away after a month when God gives you another one i just the psalms are songs to the lord and you don't have to be a songwriting major at berkeley We have a young man at our church. He's a songwriting major at Berkeley. In order to write a song, David wrote psalms. I remember reading years and years ago, I opened up this book, and the first thing I read in this book was there's no way that David uh, wrote the psalms because he was a military man. Fortunately, by that time, I had enough education stuffed into my head that I realized that a lot of educational institutions, including the ones I went to, people had to write theses, whatever, in order to graduate. And at Christian seminaries, they have to come up with some new thing. You're not allowed to do a thesis that someone else has done. So this guy who was just writing, and it, and it was pure, pure speculation. He was a military man, yes, um, but he was also a Renaissance man. And by that I mean he was a great writer. He was a great understanding of writing, and he had a way with words, and uh, the Bible's very clear in this history book, the end of 2 Samuel, called him the sweet psalmist of Israel. It's what made him such an extraordinary guy. It's what made him a man after God's own heart. And yeah, he was a military man. That's why I think the guy is such an incredible stud. He's able to write songs, beautiful songs, and that's as much manly doing that that's as manly doing that as going out to war and that's who the lord wants all of us to be we shouldn't take away from manhood manliness the biblical idea that we should be out there fighting and i'm not talking about physical fighting but fighting against the devil fighting against our flesh but we should also include in manliness just having a wonderful heart of worship towards the Lord. So this psalm here, which the first half is Psalm 105, the second half is Psalm 96, goes, says this, O oh, give thanks to the Lord, call upon his name, make known his deeds among the people. So if you wonder why at communion services and some other times we have a time for people to get up here and make known the deeds of the Lord among the people that's we do that because the bible tells us to do it right here among other places make known his deeds among the peoples sing to him sing songs to him talk of all his wondrous works You know, I was uh, just a testimony of mine. I was so damaged and polluted by hardcore rock and roll in the late '70s, just really, really, seriously wicked bands, that when I became a Christian, it this odd thing. I just didn't know any better. I couldn't imagine singing ever being a good thing for someone. I really did. I remember thinking those thoughts. And when Steffi and I got started, I remember being in a Christian bookstore, and there was this group, group a cappella, and I said, well, there's no instruments on this. Maybe, maybe this. maybe I can deal with this. And it was just so wonderful, and, and just learning to worship the Lord, I never knew anything about it growing up. My brother, younger brother, was the first one to be saved, and he used to listen to Christian music. Uh, I was like 17. He got saved when he was 16. And uh, he was the first one of my brothers to be saved, my younger brother, who's now a missionary. And uh, I remember my mother asking me, hey, do you like any of Mark's songs? And I said, no, I don't like any song where I can't tell whether the person's singing to a woman or singing to God. That's what I thought. And that's a very worldly, uh, unregenerate way of thinking it's a very worldly, unregenerate way of thinking. You will see during the Psalms that um, he, he just has this love. And in a different context, someone who just picked this up might be able to say, oh, here's someone uh, speaking to, uh, speaking, singing to a woman. But no, he's singing to the Lord. Verse 10 says, glory in his holy name. Let the hearts of those rejoice who seek the Lord. Seek the Lord and His strength. Seek His face evermore. You know, uh, I I, about two a couple months ago. I was was reading two books at the same time. I'm still reading those books. Uh, One with one man, another with another man. One. One I'm just reading on my own. But right at the same time, there was almost a conversion. conversion, And and both books are about deepening of the Christian life. One is about prayer, but the other one is just about uh, getting below the shallowness of Christianity. And both of them, within days of each other of me reading uh, the different books, both brought up seeking the Lord needs to be intense. And, and we so desperately, so many times, want to be polite in our worship of the Lord. And, uh, but if there's, not, if there's never an intensity there, and I say never, I'm not saying always, but if there's never an intensity there, something's wrong. And we should be praying, Lord, I, I don't want to fake this, Lord. I'm not feeling intense at all but be striving with the Lord to to get to this place. Seek the Lord and his strength. Verse 11, seek his face forevermore. Remember his marvelous works, which he has done, his wonders, and the judgments of his mouth. O seed of Israel, his servant, you children of Jacob, his chosen ones. He is the Lord our God. His judgments are in all the earth. Remember his covenant forever, the word which he commanded for a thousand generations, the covenant which he made with Abraham and his oath to Isaac, and confirmed it to Jacob for a statute, to Israel for an everlasting covenant, saying, to you I will give the land of Canaan as the allotment of your inheritance when you were few in number indeed very few, and strangers in it. Interesting, really interesting here that he's quoting the book of Genesis, which was written, what? Something like 500 years before this? 500 years, something like that. And he's quoting it. He's quoting the, the book of uh, Genesis, and he's remembering the time that his forefather, I don't know how many generations back, but Abraham, about 500 500 years back, however many generations that were, remember he was brought into the land of Canaan. He left the land of Ur, which is in Babylon, and went out to a place, Hebrews 11.8 says, that he did not know, which by the way is what faith is. It's proceeding in the face of not knowing just trusting in the Lord, that the Lord knows. And he got there, he was with his nephew Lot. There was, uh, the, I, guess, I think this, the, uh, the workers of Lot, the, uh, the shepherds of Lot were starting to bicker with the shepherds of Abraham. And so they had to choose which area. So Lot looks, he takes the land in front of Sodom um, and Abraham gave him the first pick. He says, you choose. And then I'll, I'll take whatever you don't choose. So Lot choose, chose the best land, the most fertile land. And then Lot went off. And then the Lord said, come up, come up to this high mountain, look everywhere, east, west, north, and south. In other words, including Lot's land, all of it's going to be yours. And that's what the Lord does, right? When we put Him first, we don't have to worry that, oh, someone else is going to take advantage of us and do a land grab or a money grab or whatever, in our, and, and, and we're not going to be able to prosper. No, the Lord, uh, the Lord knows how to prosper his people. But here, um, David is remembering, now he's, he's, he's king over all this land that was promised to his descendant, Abraham. And when Abraham was just a few in number, uh, just a few in number um, at the time. There's just, relatively speaking, a, a, a handful of, uh, of, of people with Abraham. And, but now it's an entire kingdom, and David is the king, and he's worshiping the Lord. I've got to tell you, when God does a good work in your life, landmark kind of work. We're always supposed to be thanking the Lord, but really the first thing you do, give an offering of praise. Verse 20, it says, um, continuing on after Abraham, the Israelites, when they went from one nation to another, so they were drifting from one nation to another. Jacob went down to Egypt and and from one kingdom to another people, he permitted no man to do them wrong. Yes, he rebuked kings for their sake, saying, Do not touch my anointed ones and do my prophets no harm. And so David is recounting the history of Israel preserving the line of the Messiah preserving the people of Israel the 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 the, the people of God preserving them and I, I tell you the Lord doesn't promise anyone they they're not going to be killed or taken away but I really do believe when you are walking um, in the in the will of God and you're, you're in a life of prayer, there is a confidence there that the Lord is going to protect you. Uh, the, the Lord is, he says, do not touch my, God said to the devil and to the enemies, do not touch my anointed ones and do my prophets no harm. Did you ever wonder why when Moses was speaking to Pharaoh and he was speaking in such a direct way to Pharaoh that Pharaoh just didn't, Kill him on the spot? He certainly did with many other people, right? They would thought nothing of human life. But yet Moses from time, you know, over and over uh, uh, again, uh, wreaking havoc through prophecies. It was God wreaking havoc, but through, through Moses' prophecies, and Moses would go right back into his presence. And Pharaoh didn't kill him. Why? Because God told his, to his heart, verse 22, he told the Pharaoh, don't touch my anointed ones. To verse 23, sing to the Lord all the earth, proclaim the good news of his salvation from day to day. So every day, just singing in our heart to the Lord. Verse 24, declare his glory among the nations, his wonder among all peoples, for the Lord is great and greatly to be praised. He is also to be feared above all gods, for all the gods of the people are idols, but the Lord made the heavens. Honor and majesty are before him. Strength and gladness are in his place. Many days I wake up feeling weak and I need to pursue the Lord in order to be strengthened. It says strength and gladness are in his place, in the place where he resides. Many days I will wake up without joy but the Lord is faithful when I seek him to bring me to a place of strength and gladness. You know, sometimes it's stronger than others, but it says strength and gladness are in his place. Verse 28, give to the Lord, O families of the peoples, give to the Lord glory and strength. Give to the Lord the glory due his name. I just have a note in my prayer journal that I prepare right, that, rather that I pray before Sunday mornings, and it's like, Lord, please, please show me whenever I'm trying to take your glory from you. His word here in the middle of twenty eight, give to the Lord glory and strength. Don't be stepping in front of the Lord to take glory from him. Remember that. Really fearsome set of verses in the Book of Acts. Right after Herod, one of the Herods, killed the Apostle James. It says he was out speaking to the people. He was in a, I think he was in a robe of silver or something. The light, the light was the sunlight was coming off the silver, and people were screaming out, "Whoa! This is a god, not a man!" And uh, Herod didn't collect. It didn't um, didn't correct them, so he took the glory, and the Lord struck him down. He was eaten by worms. That's in the book of Acts. It's also in a secular. I can't remember where I read it, but that secular history records this. What's Josephus? I thought that there was someone else. I don't consider him secular, Josephus. He, Oh, oh, he was? Okay. I thought there was a secular source. He said it's a non-biblical source, that, that um, he died a very painful death. And, and that's what, when we hop in front of the Lord and grab glory, that's a very fearsome thing. We need to be careful. It says, middle of verse 29, bring an offering and come before him. I tell you, the best offering you can just give him every day is your life. Romans twelve one. In view of God's mercy, offer your bodies as living sacrifice, a living offering, holy and pleasing to him. Oh, worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. Let me just repeat that. Worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. That word holiness uh, <laughs> is not something someone who is an unbeliever associates With beauty, I know in our evangelism training, it's a six-week course, and for years it was just five. It was five weeks. We went through the gospel, but we realized after five weeks that many people who were religious, including unsaved Catholic people, would agree with everything in the presentation, and that was just a problem because we would get to the end. Oh yeah, yeah, I agree with all that, and I believe all that. So we had to add a sixth section on being born again. And uh, we describe what happens when someone's born again. (laughs) And every time I read it, it does make me smile because um, it says, we we explain to people, you know, once you're born again, the Bible says that you're born once of your mother's womb, second time um, by the Spirit. And when you're born again, you really want to be with Christians, you really want to uh, you really wanna, uh, um, read the word of God, you want to obey God, uh, you want to go to church, and we say, has anything like this ever happened to you? And they don't agree with that. They believe everything you said up to that, but they don't believe that. And one of the things that um, we could add if we wanted to is, Do you believe holiness is beautiful? Because I got to tell you, I personally never had this idea that holiness is beautiful prior to being born again. This is worship the Lord and the beauty of his holiness. What is holy? Holy is anything you observe Jesus doing or being. That's holy. Tragically, we do grow up with thinking of holiness as exclusively moral excellence not lying, not having sexual morality, not getting drunk, and you know these kinds of things. Um, but that's just and, and that, that moral excellence is very beautiful. It's a beautiful thing, but it's just one of many things that make up holiness. Holy, holiness is anything, any characteristic that Jesus had, including his joy. Jesus says, I want you to have my joy. He was filled with joy, including love. Man, if a person does not love the Lord and love people, they're not holy. Humility, one of the most beautiful things is meeting a humble person. I got to tell you, when I get around a person who is truly, truly humble, it is just so... Beautiful. I, 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 I'd rather be in their presence than be in the Louvre or whatever, wherever, at some famous um, art museum, because it's just a beautiful thing. Uh, and it says, Worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. And, and this is what happens with a person who's regenerate. They, when they see holiness, they recognize it's beautiful. And they worship the Lord as a result of it. Because really, supremely, the Lord is, is the, the, the picture of holiness that we should be gazing upon the most. In spite of the fact that it's wonderful to be around a holy person, and it's a beautiful thing, it's ultimately the Lord. Verse 30, tremble before him all the earth. The world also is firmly established. It shall not be Moved, Let the heavens rejoice, and let the earth be glad. Anyone hear that Mary Barrett song? Let the heavens rejoice, and the earth be made glad." Anyone? Anyone. I, I know Sam's heard it, but he doesn't want to encourage me to sing it anymore, so he doesn't want to say. But anyway, wonderful song by Mary Barrett. You can uh, maybe Google it. Uh, she went on to be with the Lord, but she was a wonderful, wonderful worship leader. Down in Florida at a Calvary Chapel in Merritt Island. Let the heavens rejoice and let the earth be glad. Let them say among the nations, the Lord reigns. got to tell you that very, very, very simple truth, that the Lord reigns. Man, if we not only believe that intellectually, but in our hearts, we'll have so much more peace. The Lord reigns. Not R-A-I-N-S, but R-E-I-G-N-S. He reigns. He's in control. That, I know I bring this example up all the time, but that, boss that's driving you crazy. He reigns. He knows about it. He's, he, 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 that boss is there because you're not spiritual, and he wants to make you more spiritual. He's testing your spirituality when he brings these uh, people into your life that are so aggravating for you. Uh, he's not necessarily saying you're not spiritual. You're not at the spiritual place he wants you to be. That's why he sends people into our lives like that. Let the sea roar, verse 32, and all its fullness. Ah, I grew up on the ocean. I just love a roaring sea. There is nothing like that. That that photo, that print of that lighthouse with some dude standing in front of the lighthouse and gigantic wave all around him. Anyone see that? I mean, it's like the... Most awesome picture. Let the sea roar in all its fullness. Let the field rejoice in all that is in it. Uh, You know, fields, uh, birds, mountains, rivers, they're all rejoicing, not because they have life in them, but because they are reflecting um, just the glory of the Lord. Verse 33, The trees of the wood shall rejoice before the Lord, for He is coming to judge the earth. There's a reference there to our Sunday morning subject, the second coming of Jesus Christ, where he comes to judge the earth. Again, eight times as many references, according to scholars or some, to the second coming than the first coming. And he, this is one of them. Verse 34, oh, give thanks to the Lord for he is good. His mercy endures forever. And say, save us, O God of our salvation. Gather us together and deliver us from the Gentiles. It's interesting here. They have been delivered from the Gentiles, meaning the nations, but he is still encouraging people. We need to continue to do this because it's like the devil is Stirred up whenever the kingdom is established. The devil is stirred up. We can't stop calling on the name of the Lord. Save us, O God, of our salvation. Verse 35. Gather us together. Deliver us from the Gentiles to give thanks to your holy name, to triumph in your praise. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel from everlasting to everlasting. I tell you, if you're not a psalm junkie, I hope you become one. There is just nothing like going through the psalms. It sounds corny. I believe it. A psalm a day will keep the devil away. And just make them a part of your life. Reading them as often as you can will really turn you into a worshiper. They really will. And I spent... I don't know how many years just going from Psalm 1 to Psalm 150, then back to Psalm 1, then to Psalm 150. And, and it, it just, it really makes you into the worshiper. End of, end of verse 36, And all the people said, Amen. And you thought some Baptist guy in the middle of the South made that up. Nope. Right here in verse 36 in 1 Chronicles 16, And all the people said, can I hear it? Amen. And praised the Lord. So uh, this is a psalm that David had given. He wrote it, gave it to Asaph. Asaph himself, of course, um, wrote some psalms, Psalm 73. Verse verse 37, so he left Asaph and his brothers there before the ark of the covenant of the Lord to minister before the ark regularly as every day's work required. Verse 38, and Obed-Edom... With his sixty-eight brethren, remember that's the, the 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 Ark of the Covenant. After Uzzah had reached up and pro- tried to prevent the Ark from falling, he was struck dead. The procession to Jerusalem was stopped. This is we just discussed this a couple of weeks ago, and the. Ark was temporarily housed, I think, for three months in the house of Obed Edom. And it says that that whole three months his house was tremendously prospered, which I'm sure was very confusing for David for a while there. But uh, he, he wound up reading in scripture what he did wrong and, uh, with the Levites and figured it out and got it out of Obed Edom. He said, Wait, I want to be blessed too. And took it to Jerusalem. It says, including Obed-Edom, the son of Judith, and Hosa to be gatekeepers. Verse 39, and Zadok the priest and his brethren the priests before the tabernacle of the Lord at the high place that was at Gideon, I mean rather, Gibben to offer Burnt offerings to the Lord on the altar of burnt offerings regularly, morning and evening, and to do according to all that is written in the law of the Lord which he commanded Israel. And so, for those of you who are really into a deep study of the Word of God, you may notice here that there's a reference in verse 37, to the Ark of the Covenant, which is in Jerusalem, but then there's a reference in verse 39 to the tabernacle at the high place of Gibeon. So there was a period of time where the Ark was one place, and remember, at the end of Exodus, Moses, the Ark was inside the Tabernacle in the Holy of Holies. That's where you keep it, and that's where it had been until um, that's where it had been until it was taken away from. Um, it was taken away at the time that the Philistines defeated the Israelites. Under high priest Eli, where Samuel was just coming into play there. They stole it, they sent it back, and so at that time the Ark of the Covenant is in a different place than the tabernacle. And and so what had happened for 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 those of you who are interested in in, in such things, and I, I am interested in this, um, this period of time where the, the tabernacle was in a different place than the Ark of the Covenant itself. They were separated for something like, uh, how many years? 40 or 50 years. And, and um, so at one, the tabernacle itself, and that's the table of showbread, that's the altar of burnt offerings, that's the menorah, you know, with the lamp, the, the lights. That's in one place, in verse 39, it's in Gibeon, which is called a high place. But the Ark of the Covenant is in Jerusalem. David had taken it there. So you have a brief period of time where they're separated. So, um, Solomon is going to build the temple and join the two again where the Ark of the Covenant um, is really within the temple which is really a replacement for the tabernacle and there's no longer really a need um, for... Th- the, the, at least the outer structure of the tabernacle. They bring the instruments of the tabernacle into the temple and they're joined together there. But it interests me that it is in Gibeon in a high place. It, it initially, when it came out of the wilderness, um, it, was, it was at Shiloh for a while, but then that's where Eli was and his sons were doing terrible things, and that place was destroyed. Saul moved it to a place called Nob, then he killed all the priests in Nob, and it was moved to this high place in Gibeon. Now, high places uh, in the book of Deuteronomy, uh, I'm talking about this because it really does appear that it never should have made it to this high place in Gibeon. It says in Deuteronomy, you shall utterly utterly destroy, uh, Deuteronomy ch- chapter 12, verse 2, all the places where the nations which you shall dispossess serve their gods on the high mountains. But you shall seek the place where the Lord your God chooses out of all the pr- uh, tribes to put his name for a dwelling place, and there you shall go. And there you shall go. And so it's interesting. It makes its place to this, um, it makes its way, uh, Saul puts it in this high place, which they had specifically been told not to put it in a high place. But interestingly, and if anyone remembers, I talked about this in 1 Kings chapter 3, at the very beginning of Solomon's reign, it says this, it says, Solomon loved the Lord, and that should put a fear in your heart, it's because you have a, a love for the Lord now that you can't backslide as bad as Solomon did, it says he loved the Lord, it also says the Lord loved him, and it says, verse 3, Solomon loved the Lord uh, walking in the statutes of his father David. 1 Kings chapter 3, verse 3, except that he sacrificed and burned incense at the high places. And then the next verse says that he went to Gibeon, the high place, and sacrificed there. And that night the Lord appeared to him in a dream and spoke to him. In a dream just about the great things the Lord was gonna do in his life. And, and what that tells me, it's, it's interesting because he wasn't no one was the tabernacle wasn't supposed to be in Gibeon, it was a high place. It makes it very clear in 1 Kings chapter 3, verse 3. But it's interesting to me that with the Ark of the Covenant when they were carrying it in a... carrying that ark, where remember the presence of the Lord is above the mercy seat. That's one holy thing, the Ark of the Covenant. When they were carrying it in a pagan ox cart, or, or a pagan-like ox cart, rather, because they had made a new one, but they were only doing it, really, because the Philistines had sent it back to Israel in the ox cart. There's all of us keep it in an, in an ox cart. When someone touched it, Uzzah, he was immediately killed by the Lord. The Lord was really protecting his holiness there and said, now this crosses the line. However, when Solomon and many others were offering sacrifices at a high place in Gibeon, the Lord had mercy. He had mercy. He actually spoke to David there. At this place, the tabernacle should not have been. It was a high place, very specific. The, very verse, the verse right before it says that God didn't like him sacrificing in high places. But what it shows me, and I mentioned this a couple months ago, is that the Lord can speak to people even in places where there's issues, such as the Roman Catholic Church. I've met many people who, who first heard from the Lord in in the Roman Catholic Church, in the tabernacle, where there's statues of Mary and other saints and idols. The Lord spoke to them. But interestingly, it didn't last long, right? Because Solomon built the temple and brought all those instruments from the tabernacle into the temple. And no longer was there that place, that high place Worship and, 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 and I share this with you mainly to say we do need to have two things. Number one, we need to praise God for the mercy that he has shown to us because some of you in this room have testimonies of God speaking to you in unholy places, like meeting you even in a place of serious sin. But he spoke to you there out of his mercy and we also need to be careful just not to be too judgmental of others as well and 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 you know who are who are in you know denominations that we question a lot of of, of what they do. We need to be careful because the Lord does speak to people um, in those places, but um I believe he he's calling them out of those places too, just like he did with solomon so two different places. Um, Let's just go on to chapter 17 now uh, where it's going to talk now about the temple. It says, Now it came to pass when David was dwelling in his house that David said to Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of the covenant of the Lord is under a tent curtain. He's thinking in a He's thinking in the manner of men here. It doesn't make sense to him that we're going to find out God's not bothered at all by this, but he's bothered by it. And so he he says this to Nathan, you know, I dwell in this incredible house of cedar, but the Ark of the Covenant's underneath a tent. And verse 2, Nathan said to David, Do all that is in your heart, for God is with you. But it happened that night, verse 3, that the word of the Lord came to Nathan, go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, you shall not build me a house to dwell in. For I have not dwelt in a house since the time that I brought up Israel, even to this day, but I have gone from tent to, to tent, and from one tabernacle to another. Wherever I have moved about with all Israel, have I ever spoken a word to any of the judges of Israel, whom I commanded to shepherd my people, saying, why have you not built me a house of cedar? I just have, just let that sink in. This is your God. This is your God that you worship is saying this. I don't care that there's, Calvary Chapel goes from the Longwood Hall to the Ethiopian church to Cambridgeport to Ruggles Baptist Church. (laughs) He doesn't, he's okay being in a tent. The first Calvary Chapel in Costa Mesa had to go into a big tent for a long period of time as well as many other Calvary chapels. We do have to have a healthy caution and restraint about putting on God sort of human assumptions. You know, I know that he went on to build a temple which was extremely ornate, had gold all over the place, ivory, pomegranates carved out. But we really need to be careful about making too much of a building I mean, I do have mixed feelings. I've been in the Vatican and Rome and and other great cathedrals as well in Europe, but I really have mixed feelings about them because this isn't what God's about. This isn't what he's about, just this completely ornate type of thing. God's about being with his people. That's what he's about. That's what he was about when he was going in a tent from place to place to place. That is your God. That's who he is. He goes from tent to tent. Verse 7. This is a wonderful verse. Now, therefore, thus shall you say to my servant David, thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the sheepfold, from following the sheep, to be ruler over my people. Israel. This is a good one to type up, print, cut it out, and put it over your doorpost because he's done that with every one of you. He took you from the sheepfold, whatever it was. That Being a shepherd was the least, it was the, I shouldn't say it, but like the scum of the earth, at least that was the perception of many people of shepherds. And now he's king. And he's done the same thing with you. He's done the same thing with you. He's taken you out of a lowly, lowly place and he's made you a king. He's made you a son of a king, a co heir with Christ, adopted sons and daughters, princes. Verse 8, and I have been with you wherever you have gone and have cut off all your enemies from before you and have made you a name like the name of the great men who are on the earth. Moreover, verse 9, I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them that they may dwell in a place of their own and move no more. So there is a time from stopping going from place to place and there was a time to establish the temple. Nor shall the sons of Wickedness oppress them any more as previously, since the time that I commanded judges to be over my people Israel. Uh, so during the whole time of Judges, there's a member of the book of Judges, they were just constantly being oppressed. And the Lord's saying, no, I'm putting that to an end. Also, I will subdue all your enemies. Furthermore, I tell you that the Lord will build you a house and it shall be when your days are fulfilled, meaning when you die, when you must go to be with your fathers that I will set up your seed, meaning your your son, your descendant after you, who will be Um, of your sons, and I will establish his kingdom. Now, verse 12 and verse 14 are messianic prophecies, prophesying of Jesus' eternal kingdom. He shall build me a house, verse 12, and I will establish his throne forever. I will be his father and he shall be my son. And I will not take my mercy away from him as I took it from him who was before you. I will establish him in my house and in my kingdom forever. And his throne shall be established forever. Ever. That is speaking of Jesus Christ. That's why they call Jesus the son of David. That's why in Isaiah chapter 9, uh, verse 6, it says, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulder. And then verse 7 of Isaiah 9, it says, Of, of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end upon the throne of David and over his kingdom. So, in the Old Testament as well as the New, it was very clear that these verses here in 1 Chronicles chapter seventeen, which we also see in 2 uh, Samuel, are clearly establishing a line to the Messiah. In Luke chapter one, when um, God, the angel, is rather is speaking to Mary. Uh, He says to her, Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bring forth a son. He will be great. He will be called the son of the highest and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. That is directly tied to the verses we are in tonight where God tells David Verse 14, I will establish him in my house and in my kingdom forever, and his throne shall be established forever. This is well known at the time of the Jesus, where people are commonly referring to the Messiah as the son of David. That's why these very verses we're reading. According to all these words, verse 15, according to all this vision, so Nathan spoke to David. Now, just a little word about Nathan. Back in verse um, uh, 1, remember, David's like, how can I be in a house and, and the Lord's, Underneath a tent, and Nathan says, Do all that is in your heart, for God is with you. And he was misrepresenting the Lord. God never told him to tell David that. What's the problem with what Nathan did? He didn't pray to God. He didn't go to the Lord and say, Hey, David's just asked me whether he should build you a temple. What should I tell him? No, he didn't. He didn't say that. He said, David, go do everything that is in your heart. Why? It's such a great idea. I mean, it's just like last week when we saw that uh, David, uh, when he became king, the Philistines came out against him. And what did he do? He didn't say, I've won every single battle that I've ever fought. Therefore, I am going to go out. There's no need to pray. No. He inquired of the Lord. The Lord said, go up and uh, defeat them. I've delivered you, them into, your, into, into my hand, into your hand. Then he defeats them. They come up again. What does he do? He, again, he, he doesn't say, well, I defeated them the first time. Obviously, it's a good idea. I need to go and do it, do it again. No, he, he asked, Lord, should I go up against them? He, the Lord said what? What did he say? That's right. No, don't go up against them. Go up from behind them. Um, And and so, so important because good ideas are not always God's ideas. And so, um, Nathan, as David as well, uh, rather, David when he took the ark up the first time, as well as Nathan here in chapter 17, they were man enough to eat their pride, say, I was wrong, I was foolish, I shouldn't have done, and they publicly make a public display of their humility saying we need to do something a different way. We've been reading about um, the egg on the face of Nathan ever since, and I'm so glad because how many times have I given someone counsel as a pastor of this church, and then that same night the Lord's like, Hey, Steve, why did you tell him that? Why did you tell her that? And then I have to, you know, with my tail between my legs, go back to the person, you know, I, I shouldn't have told you that. But I'm so thankful to, to read that, that David and Nathan, these, these wonderful men of God, uh, were the same way.